Right, hello and welcome. Thanks for uh, joining us. Uh, you have found Hey All You Zombies, or as uh, Christian Bale would probably call it, Hey All You Zombies. <laughs> um, my name is Chris Abel, and my colleague through the mirror there is Richard Krauss. Uh, nice to see everybody. <laughs> Yeah, by all means, be friendly. Yeah. Uh, 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 we're gonna, I guess, take care of a couple of things. First off, uh, mm -hmm. we've got this fun little game that we do. If you've been watching the series, you know all about it. Movie Pistols at Dawn. Mm -hmm. uh, last week was Doom Cakes, which was a really cool idea that in movies people don't actually eat cake. They bring it out, and then everybody ends up crying for one reason or another. Right, it becomes like a weird metaphor for everything awful in your life. Yeah, I don't know. There's some, nobody has a happy birthday in the movies. It's always an excuse for family problems and trials. Uh, and uh, you ended up winning, as usual, uh, but just by one vote. Just by one, one vote. vote. One vote with your selection of Carrie, which is probably the ultimate example of a birthday going wrong. Uh, <laughs> uh, but later on in the show, I'm going to talk about some really, really wild and crazy cool movie props. You're going to have to check this out. Mm -hmm. uh, but first of all, uh, you know, it's, it's the dark night this week. It's Batman. Uh, between the two of us, Richard has seen it. I have to wait till tomorrow. Mm -hmm. But uh, you can at least kind of give us an idea of what to expect, right? Well, are you going at midnight? Tomorrow? Um, On the Thursday? I haven't purchased my tickets yet. I'm mm. still working out my strategy and who I might sort of, you know, go and see it with, but right. I am seeing it. By hook or by crook, yes. Well, I'll tell you, uh, uh, you won't be disappointed. Yeah. You know, that, that's the, the, the headline of this is, The Dark Knight Rises, not disappointing. <laughs> I guess that's the headline. I mean, it's two hours and 40 minutes, two hours and 45 minutes. Uh, it has a much sort of more epic feel. Uh, the IMAX certainly adds to that because you're watching this movie on the screen uh, the size of a football field. So it, it has kind of this big, epic kind of feel to it, like you're watching Lawrence of Arabia or something like that. It's got that kind of scope. And the scenes that were shot in IMAX, so the entire movie's not in IMAX, but the scenes that are shot in IMAX look unbelievable uh, because, you know, you've got Batman standing on top of the Chrysler building, cape billowing in the wind as he looks out over the city of Gotham, and it's really something. Like, those scenes... Uh, will make your eyeballs not only dance, but possibly explode. They look so cool. Um, the rest of the movie is interesting because it's a much more, I think, straightforward movie uh, than uh, The Dark Knight. Uh, if I was to uh, identify a tone in a movie, if, you, if you're a newcomer to the Christopher Nolan movies and you want to see one before you, uh, check out The Dark Knight Rises this weekend. I would see Batman Begins because I think they are thematically probably uh, the closest together. And also, I think you, you need to know some of the lore that happens in that first movie of the Nolan trilogy to really fully understand what's happening in uh, the third movie, although it's well enough to explain. Um, right. it is and this isn't just... Batman sort of number three, the, the idea is that you're, where Batman Begins was sort of the, the, the first movie in the series, this is kind of the last movie in this particular story arc or story it, series. It, it's a finale. It is a finale in every way. Uh, there's been lots of speculation online uh, about what might happen in this movie's final moments, and I've read a fair amount of it. Uh, since I've seen the movie, I, I didn't want to read a lot of it going in because I, I didn't want to be, uh, you know, have any preconceived notions in my head. I certainly didn't want to read anyone else's reviews. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later on in the show. Uh, but this movie... Let me say, online, I'm trying to think of a way to say this without giving away anything, no spoilers, and no, yeah. with avoiding all the hate mail that comes along, apparently, with talking about Batman in any sort of negative way. This movie does not end in the way that anyone online so far has suggested. Good. That's all I'm saying about that. I will tell you that it is, uh, it is a, a, a movie that aspires to... Uh, Bigness. It, is, it, it aspires to be grand. It's about big, big themes. It's about um, the 1% versus the 99%, although not in a way that you might think. Uh, you know, it's interesting to me that Mitt Romney, and we're going to talk about this a bit later on in the show too, Mitt Romney uh, had a company called Bain, B-A-I-N, uh, that was pronounced but not spelled the same way that the villain in the new uh, Batman movie is uh, pronounced. And, although it's interesting that the Bane in the movie uh, is sort of working. Uh, he's uh, allegedly the bad boy. He is the bad guy. Um, but it is Batman that's actually sort of 
fighting to stomp down the 99%, the Occupy oh, right. people, yes. where Bain is fully on their side. So, uh, But we'll, we'll get to that in a little while. Um, I just think that this movie uh, not only has great performances, and, I mean, you know, we expect, uh, you know, Christian Bale to grimace and, and growl his way through these, and he does so like no one else. He has made the characters own. So that's cool. Um, Michael Caine brings a lot more to this movie than you would expect from a big summer action movie like this. There's some really uh, emotional scenes that he has that you won't see coming. Um, you've got, uh, you know, Morgan Freeman back. He's sort of calm, cool, and collected as yeah. usual as uh, Lucius. Um, you know, who else? Gary Oldman is back, and, you know, he is as kind of uh, as much of a fire plug as he ever, or a spark plug as he ever was in any of the movies. They're all terrific. But for me, it was the new characters that kind of really shined in this, or shone in this. Uh, you've got Tom Hardy as Bane. Now, there was a great deal of uh, speculation whether you'd be able to understand a word he was saying, because, of course, Bane wears a mask. And <laughs> in the yeah. first few minutes that we saw of this movie, it just sounded like heavy breathing and, and with an English accent. And I do have to say that there are moments in this film when he's uh, saying lines like, there can be no true despair without hope in this very kind of Baroque, almost like a, a Shakespearean, a loony Shakespearean villain, the way is right. the way he speaks. Um, I do have to say that they've cleaned up a great deal of it, but there are a number of times during this movie that it still kind of sounds like a drunken whisper mixed with baby talk. <laughs> Just a little bit, you know? You can't yeah. understand every... But certainly, you know, the performance, listen, considering that he's wearing a mask and you can literally see his forehead and eyes and, like, a little bit of his bald head, that's about it. Uh, he really pulls this off. And, of course, his physicality. I mean, he's just a huge guy. Yeah. And Bane, you know, he, he, he looks like and behaves like a cross between, a, you know, a modern-day terrorist and Attila the Hunt. I mean, that's kind of... If you bash those two together, that's where you end up with this. So uh, you've got a, a, a good villain, not as flamboyant maybe as Heath Ledger's uh, uh, Joker, because the Joker was all about chaos, creating chaos, and you never knew exactly what he was going to do next. Uh, Bane is uh, intelligent. He has a well-thought-out plan, and the plan uh, goes uh, you know, pretty much according to what his plan is, and they lay it out for you. So the big shocks aren't there. But there's some very cool stuff that happens. Uh, Anne Hathaway. People were a little poo-pooing here. And I, I don't understand why people don't like Anne Hathaway. How do you feel about it? Because I like her. I, people don't, though, or some people don't. Right. Uh, I would say that in the movies that I've seen her in, she's always delivered a good performance. Uh, she's not someone who's just there because she's popular. I think right. she's a talented actress. But I, I would agree with um, at least the, the initial first blush reaction that she seems to be an odd choice to be able to play that character. That right. considering, you know... So was Michael Keaton to play Batman in the first series. Very true. You know? yes. I mean, I, I think one of the things that Christopher Nolan and, and interesting directors do is play against the, the sort of casting that you might expect. You know? Right. Uh, and I think what they've done here by casting Anne Hathaway, who, you know, I mean, listen, if you're old enough, or young enough, I guess, and, or you review movies like me, you remember seeing her in things like The Princess Diaries and, you know, Disney right, movies and yes. things. And then, you know, she she worked her way through that, uh, made movies like Brokeback Mountain, you know, was uh, more naked, or as I like to say, naked, uh, in Love and Other Drugs than you would normally find uh, from an actress of her stature and uh, fame. And, you know, then she takes on this role. So I wasn't exactly sure what to expect from her, and I'll tell you, um, she erases memories of Michelle Pfeiffer, who is kind of the, the uh, cat in the movie that people remember. Sure, yeah. She is charismatic. She's smart. She's sexy. She's got an interesting way about her in this. And there's great chemistry between her and uh, Christian Bale. It's a shame oh. that we won't see them ever together on screen again in these <laughs> roles. Uh, but uh, they are awfully good. And I really, uh, you know, probably the most thankless role in this movie goes to Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Joseph Gordon-Levitt uh, plays a young uh, rookie cop uh, named John Blake, uh, who uh, has a great deal to do with the sort of the workings of the story, but unfortunately he's also saddled with a great deal of exposition. Uh, this is going to happen. They're in the thing, and they're in the tunnels, and oh, what's going to, you know, he's going to do all that stuff, and that is thankless. There is, you know, many uh, uh, characters that you see. There's one in every movie that's the person that just delivers information, um, but normally they're not handled by actors of his ability. 
And he right. actually manages to take this character, turn it into a real person, someone that you're actually rooting for in a movie that's filled with people that have to wear masks and, and capes and, you know, that can uh, <laughs> climb up to the sides of buildings and things. So uh, he brings uh, a real humanity to it. And I think that he does a terrific job, and some of the scenes in the movie that he's in are some of the best in the movie. On the downside, there's not, a, there's not for my money, not enough Batman. The suit makes the man. Wear the damn suit. Wear the suit from the first second. That's what I paid to see. Uh, and it doesn't really happen. It, you know, he wears, obviously, you see him in the suit, uh, you know, a fair amount. But he's not in the suit as much as you might think. Um, the IMAX is so beautiful. I prefer, you know, if, we, if, if we're going to get down to sort of gimmicky ways to show movies, IMAX is, you know, hands down, my preferred format over 3D or odorama or any of those things right yeah and uh in this movie though it's interesting because when you blow up the picture or when you shoot it uh on a on a, a format that's going to be projected on the, something the size of a football field um you start to notice that in the fight scenes punches go like this oh oh you know uh -huh. this and, and it took me just a little bit out of it as i was watching and saying oh you know, people right, snapping right, their heads back right. when quite clearly weren't hit by anything. <laughs> um, and uh, so that was a bit of a letdown. Uh, we talked about Bane's dialogue a little bit, but overall, listen, I have to say, as big blockbuster, tentpole Hollywood movies go, uh, it doesn't really get much better than this. Christopher Nolan has, like Peter Jackson before him, has taken three stories, molded them together in a really interesting way, uh, you know, cast unconventional people in, in lead roles, uh, told stories that lesser directors or perhaps other directors might have gone a much different way with. And I think, you know, you, you, you could have uh, told these stories in any number of ways. He chose to go dark with them uh, and really explore what it means to sacrifice not only yourself but your spirit uh, in, you know, in, 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 and to try and do that for the, the overall good of, everyone around you and how it can be the most typical choice that maybe you'll ever make. You know, this is not really the stuff that a lot of superhero movies are made of. No. Uh, there are great action scenes, but there's also a little bit more. There's an undercurrent of uh, really interesting stuff. Also, you know, uh, we talked to, you know, a little bit about Mitt Romney earlier, and this movie was shot during the Occupy movement, which presumably means that it was, I mean, you know, you don't spend 200 million bucks on a movie and not have a script in place when you go in. So, and presumably, the script was done a year ago, more, more yeah. than that. And so, uh, it still sounds incredibly timely to me. Uh, you've got uh, Selena Kyle, who was Catwoman. She's never actually called Catwoman in the movie, by the way. Oh. Um, and she says uh, at one point into Bruce Wayne's ear, you're all going to wonder how you ever thought you could live so large and leave so little for the rest of us. And there's a lot of uh, stuff that applies directly to the Occupy movement, to the, you know, the, the topic du jour of movies, everything from Step Up Revolution, which is, you know, a kind of cheesy little dance movie that comes out next week, uh, which is all about, you know, the haves and the have-nots. Batman is, at its core, it's about that, but in a very epic, big way. So it's timely, it's fun. Uh, there are some scenes on the IMAX screen. The first seven minutes of this movie is one of the craziest action sequences I've ever seen, bar none. Uh, and it's, uh, it's good stuff. I'm relieved that the finale of this was really, uh, truly a grand finale. Oh, that's fantastic. I mean, uh, you know, we've had a lot of disappointments when it comes to getting third movies in a franchise. Uh, Spider-Man 3, uh, yeah. <laughs> you, listen, <laughs> Matrix 3, you know, I mean, yeah. yeah. It's hard well, see, to... The further you get away from the source material, right. you know, generally speaking, the worse you have. No, it's interesting because, you know, Christopher Nolan directed all three of these movies. Sam Raimi did all the Spider-Man movies. The Wachowskis did the Matrix movies. Um, but I think that there comes a point where uh, no matter who you are, uh, unless you exert an enormous amount of control over the, the material, that, you know, it can get away from you. You know, marketing concerns come into uh, play and all that sort of thing. So it seems to me that that's what's happened with these other third parts of big series like this. Apparently, the Wachowskis had a much different movie in mind for the third Matrix movie, but, you know, they, they shot 
two and three together. And then when two came out and underperformed a little bit and, uh, you know, people uh, at the studio were wondering, you know, what was going to happen in number three, they watched what the Wachowskis had done and said, oh, wait, that's not going to be the way this is going to go. Right. And as a result, we got a really muddled, weird movie that uh, was a disappointment and then ultimately was forgettable. I, you know, to be honest, I get bits of two and three they're interchangeable to me. They, they, there's nothing in either of those movies that stands out for me like anything in the first movie. No, I completely agree. So that's great news. I can't wait to see uh, Dark Knight uh, opening right. up tomorrow. Yay. <laughs> Very excited. Uh, my first topic that I want mm-hmm. to talk about this week is um, the process that I go through sometimes in trying to um, discover or be careful of what we would call snake oil technology. Right. That in my line of work, you're constantly looking at new technology that often promises to do stuff that at first glance seems to be too good to be true. And when it's from a company that you've never heard of before, how do you make (laughs) sure uh, that you're not falling into a trap where you've got some kind of a scam or some kind of a a piece of fraud that's being perpetuated on the public? And there's a lot of that stuff that's out there and around there. Well, it's Uh, interesting. In the Batman movie, that's what the Catwoman's after. She's after this technology uh, because, of course, she has a past. And apparently there's a, a bit of technology that will erase her completely from every database, every internet site, everything, everywhere, all across the world. And she desperately wants that because she wants to start again. Sure, yes. Uh, and the difficulty is that, you know, sometimes the technology can be very promising. It sounds really, really good. Uh, and how do you make sure that you're you know, not going to end up assigning your name to something and it turns out to be a, a piece of right. crap, you know? Right. Uh, and it's a good time to talk about this because I had to go through this process last week. Uh, and it, I, I want to talk about this because this is the sort of thing that never gets featured in any of my segments or any of my stories. This is the stuff that goes behind the scenes. My job is as much about the stories that you see uh, or that you don't see as the ones that you do see. Uh, and so what happened was last week I heard about an app that's going to be coming out for the iPhone um, that claims that if you just listen to a special sound through a pair of headphones for 30 minutes every day for two weeks, you can actually not only prevent hearing loss as you get older, but that you can actually reverse any hearing damage that you've taken on, Uh, which is astonishing because your hearing is actually neurological by nature. And as far as we know from modern science, if you suffer hearing damage or you go deaf, that cannot be reversed. It's neurological. Once it's dead, it's gone. Right. Now, so now, I have heard I have heard about uh, classical music therapies and things that have been used right. in this way. Um, whether they work or not, I don't know. But I have heard similar things to this in the past. Yeah, there, there's been sort of you know stuff out there. And when I came across this product, I mean, I knew instantly that this would be something of major interest to our audience at News Talk 1010. Right. We have a right. demographic that's a lot older. Uh, when you're dealing with people who are of an older demographic, then they're more susceptible to feeling afraid about right. getting older, about losing their faculties. And this is such a tempting solution because you don't have to have surgery. You don't even have to see a doctor. What I only have to buy an app, put it on my phone, and hey, yeah. taking care of all my hearing problems. Um, the, the difficulty for me was that everything about this product on the, on the face of it actually looked really good. Uh, the company calls themselves The Good Ear. They've got a nice, clever name. Uh, they've got a beautiful, slick website. Uh, their app is just gorgeous in terms of having this uh, interface where it shows your cochlear inside your ear. Uh, and, and a really good kind of setup where they say that you would listen to a set of sounds, you'd register what the volume is, and based right. on that information, it determines what weaknesses are in your hearing. And then as long as you play the sound, then your hearing will be better. And that's the right. problem that I had was they sort of skipped the most important part, which is to explain like how? how, yes, what exactly is, are they claiming here? It, and that's sort of missing. Uh, so what I did was I ended up contacting the Canadian Hearing Foundation, and um, just put in a, a brief phone call and said, you know, have you heard of this thing that's coming out? Uh, but most importantly, have you heard of the science that they're claiming behind it? Right. And, you know, what do you make of it? And if it was something that was kind of reasonably okay, I probably wouldn't get a call back. But I had a call back immediately. Uh, they had never heard of this uh, stuff before, and their initial impression was actually to laugh at it because everything about it just seemed to be ridiculous. Right. Um, but they were very good folks in that they sat down and treated it 
in a scientific way of saying, well, let's think about whether this is plausible. Let's look at their material and go through it. And they did. And they came back and they said, we have so many issues and problems and flags. We don't really know where to start. Um, the website does list a number of clinical trials. So it suggests that it's based on medical research. But what they have um, noticed was that a lot of this clinical trials began in 2010. And so it seems like it's very fast for them to have a product on the market. For eight months. We tried this for eight months. <laughs> exactly. And then on top of that, it, um, their, their actual research papers that they list on their website say very clearly we have yet to have any conclusive results. Wow. So not a lot really kind of, you know, suggested yeah, yeah. there. But the woman I spoke to, her name is Gail. Uh, she's more of a researcher for the foundation. Her job is to constantly be aware of various studies out there. Uh, their mission, of course, is to raise awareness for hearing and give valuable tips to people like, hey, you know, when you go to a loud rock concert, the musicians wear earplugs. Maybe you should, uh, too. Yeah, yeah. It's not a bad idea to do that kind of stuff. So uh, the next person I ended up contacting, uh, his name is uh, Richard Harrison, and he's the um, lead scientist for the auditory lab at SickKids Hospital. And when I initially called, again, they're very busy. I didn't expect them to call back. When he heard what I was talking about, I got to call back immediately. Uh, and he was really unhappy. Uh, he immediately started to use words like uh, manipulation, snake oil, okay. uh, irresponsible, very unhappy with uh, what this, the claims that this product that they were making. But again, went through the, the actual scientific process to say, is this plausible? Because in the world of science, we do have things that happen that are just crazy. Right, and that you just, that, that happen... Uh, seemingly uh, for, well, not for no reason, but they, they, in an unexpected way. Well, I mean, there are things that we sort of end up sort of taking as for granted. So, for example, they used to say that if you drank alcohol, that that would kill off brain cells. Right. And that, you know, once your brain cells are gone, that's it. We now know uh, instead, through thanks to new research, that actually even late into your life, you will grow new brain cells. Your brain will make new synaptic connections. There is great capacity for you to maintain your mental faculties later on in life. It's good news. So you have to kind of be careful not to easily ridicule these kinds of ideas. But the problem is that, you know, there are lots of flags. I mean, they, they describe their technical process as being sound therapy and sound conditioning, and those are two key words often used by fraudsters because they speak to a demographic that easily buys into this kind of stuff. Well, and, and people that want, I mean, people with hearing loss, uh, which is, you know, irreversible, essentially. I mean, you can get hearing aids and things, but, you know, they're looking for hope, and that's what these people are selling, are hope, and I think that's what makes it dangerous and, you know, pushes it to, uh, to another level. For me, anyway, because you're you're saying to people, you know what? Everyone else says that you know your damage is permanent, but we figured out a way to 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 help you. Right, and all you have to do is give us your money. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. no, it's it's extremely dangerous. Well, he went through uh, the science, and he was annoyed by a couple of things. One, that the clinical trials that they had listed on their website, all the research papers there, were actually written by scientists working for a company called EarLogic. Right. which is appears to be a sibling company to the company that actually sells this product. Right, right. And the inference would be it seems like they came up with the idea for the product and then had some people create some research papers after the fact to kind of support it. Right. So they were reviewing themselves, really. Yeah. Pretty much. And he even said that he knew some of the, you know, the, the research papers cited other research that has been done in the field. He says he knows the people that are doing those research, and if they found out what these guys were doing, they'd be really, really ticked off mm -hmm. uh, in terms of how their information is being misconstrued. But the, the danger here is that even though we have these experts who are very clear saying, number one, the claims that are being made here, you cannot use a frequency sound to regenerate tissue or, or you know, heal damage that has been done to the ear. This product is, is clearly fraudulent. It's making claims that are false. You can't really do anything about the product because of two reasons. One is that it's hard to prove that it's doing any real damage. Right. Uh, just listening to a sound is not going to cause you any medical problems. The app itself is, uh, I think it's 99 cents a month you have to pay as a subscription fee. So even if you do buy into it, you're not out a significant amount of money. There's no real damage here. You can't, it's hard to go after. But the second part, this is the really, really hard part here, is that you could make a case that the app does offer some benefit. It may not reverse damage within your hearing, but it could possibly... Uh, make it seem that after you use it, you've got a, a positive result. And this right. is what he ended up explaining to me, is that that's what they're exploiting here. They're exploiting the fact that the average consumer is not an expert. 
is going to make confusions and they can anticipate what kind of confusion people will make and then exploit that. And yeah, I, I see that. I went for acupuncture at one point for a problem I was having and I went for a long time and I don't know, I'll just say up front, I don't think it worked. I don't think it did anything. But, <laughs> but in my head it seemed to work because I wanted it to work. And I think yeah. that's what you're saying, right? I, I, I desperately wanted this acupuncture to, to uh, you know, make me feel better. And I think because I willed it so, I think for a short while, I think I did feel better. Well, the, the power of the mind is an interesting thing. And, and the distinction here is that uh, there is a difference between your ability to hear and your ability to listen. Mm. So your ear as a physical instrument has an ability to hear sounds. Right. But once those sounds come in, it's left up to your brain to actually process those sounds. And, you know, that's where things can be different in terms of how you can right. hear and how I can hear. Right. Your ears might be able to pick up more sound than my ears, but my brain might be more defined in terms of processing the sound. So I can make right. out what somebody's saying. There's that kind of a thing. And so what uh, the suggestion was that if a person sat down and did use this app for 30 minutes a day for two weeks, just the very fact that they're sitting down with a pair of headphones on and are focused on the, the, the habit of hearing right. might actually have an effect where their mind is now so focused on listening that you could actually start to be a better listener. Right, right. right? And you might confuse that with being a better hearer, someone who's got a, an actual you know, improvement in terms of their hearing. And so that becomes the problem. It's almost like a placebo effect that they're selling here. Right. Uh, you're going to find people who will buy this product and they'll offer testimonials where they say, wow, I can actually listen a lot better than I could two weeks ago. But they're confusing, you know, what is happening with their mind rather than what is physically happening with the, the anatomy of their ears. Right, right. Well, that's so, interesting. I, I, and so, so what's your final verdict then? Oh, well, I, I think it's, it's absolute snake oil. It's, it's fraudulent. Uh, I think that they are uh, manipulating the placebo effect here, and they're just trying to take people for their money. And although it, it seems relatively harmless and innocuous, uh, and you could argue that it would be wrong to try to be too restrictive on, on products like this, because it ends up creating an opportunity where you could take care of, you could end up removing, say, herbal remedies or naturopathy mm -hmm. from the market. Maybe those do deserve to be on the market. But I think that there is an issue here that you're being deceptive that you right. are exploiting people and you are creating a practice that teaches people that it's okay to not ask questions, to not think about things rationally, and to not worry about whether, you know, if they just feels good, then it must be good, that kind of thing. Well, I think those things have always existed, though. I mean, if you looked at the back of, uh, you know, uh, National Enquirer magazines and that kind of thing, there was always like, you know, garlic is the wonder pill that will cure your cancer and, you know, all that yeah. stuff, and, and people bought into that in a big way. So, I mean, you know, and the term snake oil dates back, you know, 150, 200 years. So, you know, it, it, this isn't anything new. It's just sort of a, a high-tech delivery system. Right, and often they're using the same sort of scams, but just, you know, um, using new, new, taking advantage of the fact that we all get excited about technology right. as being the entry point to kind of reintroduce what is essentially a scam that's been around for maybe 100 years or 120 years, right, uh, right. that kind of thing. But I, I would say that the good news out of my whole discussion, even though it didn't result in a story for me to take on the radio, because on the radio, I'm only taking on apps that I recommend. That's what right, they want right, from right. me. I don't get to do the negative reviews. But I would say that the good news here out of all this is that it proves that if you were to put on a pair of headphones and just listen to Hey All You Zombies okay. every week, then you might actually find that you're starting to listen a little better. Uh, and you don't have to pay 99 cents a month. We do it for free. Uh, you know, we're altruistic here at Hale. That's how much it costs right here. There you that's go. That's how much. Um, <laughs> that's interesting. Well, you know what? Let's, let's, let's do some clinical trials with the podcast. There's eight or nine of them now online. There's about nine hours. That, that should get you through, you know, a few weeks of, of listening for half an hour a day. And uh, we'll, we'll check that. This is a story that we'll, we will follow as it develops. Right. Well, and, you know, I, I do need to point out that um, although I have done this whole investigation on this product, and I think that it's very fraudulent, others have not. Right. One of the reasons um, that uh, the, the Hearing Foundation was getting a little annoyed was that VentureBeat, which is a well-respected technology journal that deals with tech news for the investing community, not right. only did a full write-up on the company, they actually have given them an award 
they gave them the Mobile Venture Tesla Award. There was a whole competition for mobile technology, and they felt that this was the best technology of the group. Uh, there have been other websites that have picked it up. Even uh, Alan Cross ended up featuring it on his blog. He did a whole piece on musicians losing their hearing as they get older and thought, as an afterthought, he just sort of put it on his blog without really thinking about it. And so it shows just how easy it is for companies like this to kind of build up create, uh, credibility that becomes very hard to knock down. That's right. That's right. Well, speaking of credibility... Yeah. things that need to be knocked down. This, this falls under my, my category of ridiculous conspiracy theory of the week. And I might add, uh, you know, a caveat to that. Let's make that the year. Uh, blustery talk radio host Rush Limbaugh is claiming that the, the Dark Knight Rises is an attack on presidential hopeful Mitt Romney. Now, Mitt Romney, as I mentioned earlier, used to work for or used to run a company called Bain. Uh, he left the company, uh, you know, many years ago, but continued to be paid by them for a certain amount of time, even though apparently he wasn't working there. And it was a, a, a time of turmoil for the company when they did some not very nice things. And it's coming back to really bite him in the ass now. Uh, now, Limbaugh is making a connection between that former company, which was called Bain, B-A-I-N, and the supervillain Bain, B-A-N-E, played by Tom Hardy. He says uh, there's a discussion out there as to whether or not this was purposeful and whether or not it will influence voters. It's going to have uh, a lot of people, he says, uh, or it's going to, to really sort of get to a lot of people, he says. Uh, the audience is going to be huge. Uh, a lot of people are going to go see this movie, and a lot of brain-dead people, entertainment and pop culture people, uh, they're going to hear Bane in the movie, and they're going to associate Bane, B-A-I-N. Uh, you know, these people will start thinking back uh, to the Batman movies whenever they hear about Bane. So he says that, you know, the Obama campaign is going to be harping on this uh, in the hopes that a big superhero movie is going to decide the fate <laughs> of the uh, next uh, presidential election. You know, I mean, this says just a, you know, a, a couple of things to me. Um, and uh, let me see if I can pull up a photograph while I'm talking here. I have a, <laughs> I have a photograph I want to share. Um, and we'll see. Let me see if this will work. I wonder if there's ever has Mitt Romney ever had a career in masked Mexican wrestling? <laughs> well, if you see the photo that I've just pulled up oh, here, oh nice! It, it sort of looks like maybe he has. Uh, this is something <laughs> that, of course, someone has put together. It's Mitt Romney wearing Bane's mask. And you now, listen, I'll tell you. Uh, you know, I I just think that this says to the audience that he's speaking to that he doesn't have a lot of uh, respect for a great many people out there who may be listening, uh, calling them, you know, pop culture nerds, uh, the comic book crowd, they can't make up their own mind. Uh, what he doesn't seem to be taking into account, uh, you know, because he thinks, of course, that, you know, this character was created to torpedo Bane's chances, uh, or uh, Romney's chances in the polls. Uh, what he doesn't seem to understand is that it's not the first time that Bane has appeared in a movie. Uh, the character was created in 1993. He's appeared uh, in at least one other movie, and he's uh, all over the comics and uh, on a lot of the animated Cartoons shows. Cartoons and yeah. yeah everything. So 1993, that was a year, a full year before Romney ran for office of any kind. And that the movie does have an Occupy-style plot line, but the hero turns out to be a billionaire who uh, saves Gotham from the teeming masses, which is, I think, just the exact opposite of uh, what uh, he seems to think the meeting is. It, it, it annoys me that somebody like Rush Limbaugh can, on his radio broadcast, uh, talk about this, influence people, get the facts wrong. He doesn't get the name, the title of the movie right. He doesn't seem to have gone on. Uh, the, uh, you know, we do have the Internet tubes now. It, was, it wasn't that hard for me to find out that Bain was created in 1993. No. I had to look it up. It took about 40 seconds. Uh, Limbaugh could have done that as well. And I just think that it's that kind of uh, uh, flaming, that kind of hate, that sort of trollism uh, that sort of is influencing um, it, you know, it's not in any way going to influence uh, the presidential election, but it sort of influences discourse. It influences the way that people discuss things. And that leads to the second part of what I wanted to talk about. <laughs> uh, right now, as we sit here, 
you know, now, because uh, you may be watching this two weeks from now from the time we're taping it, but uh, The Dark Knight Rises sits at about 84% on Rotten Tomatoes. Rotten Tomatoes, if you don't know, is an aggregate site that uh, takes reviews from all over the place, uh, declares them either fresh or rotten, assigns a score to them, and then the movie overall gives a score. Now, um, uh, the movie was initially sitting at 100% fresh, which means that, you know, big thumbs up all the way around, with the exception of two reviews. Now, two reviews wasn't enough to, to torpedo the score, its perfect score. They were from Christine Muir, who uh, is an AP writer, lives in Los Angeles, and uh, Mitchell Fine, who is, uh, uh, a, for years, uh, a film critic and has a, a site called Hollywood and Fine. Now, these people didn't enjoy the movie so much, and uh, they were flamed by Internet uh, trolls, Call them what they are, I guess. No, I uh, who uh, sent uh, death threats? Who attacked Christie? Who was a woman? Uh, uh, said, you know, you may be good looking, but you clearly don't know anything about movies. Blah 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 blah. And the interesting thing is, nineteen percent of these comments would have come from people that hadn't seen the movie yet, uh, because the movie had only been screened for like junket press and a few assorted uh, invited press people and critics. Uh, so I, I just I, I was really shocked and really kind of, I guess, well, you know what? Shocked is too strong a word. I wasn't shocked because I've had this happen to me. I haven't right. had death threats really so yeah. much, but I've had people, uh, you know, be in touch that weren't very pleased with somebody. Wrote. And the, the thing that's uh, interesting is that the, the most, uh, the, the most vicious of these attacks always are from anonymous sources. So Rotten Tomatoes has declared that, in light of what happened to Christie and, and Fine, they're going to, uh, they're, they're considering bringing in a new kind of, of commenting system where you'll have to sign in through Facebook or something like that, where you won't be able to be as anonymous as you previously have been. I think it's a fantastic idea. I don't care what you say as long as you're willing to put your face to it. Put your face on it and you can say whatever you want. Um, I have opinion. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a purveyor of opinions. It's what I do. And I put my face on it, on everything that I write, everything that I say on television or radio uh, has my name and my face all over it. And, um, you know, you have to be able to stand by it. And it's not uh, enough uh, just to, you know, think, well, I'm mad and I can say whatever I want. Then you are just, you know, contributing to the rush limbization of, uh, of, you know, North America where it seems okay to uh, say whatever the hell is on your mind. Uh, Rush puts his name to it. I'll give him that. But uh, instead of to say whatever the hell is on your mind, regardless of whether there's any merit to it, whether there's any truth to it, whether there's any critical thought behind it. Uh, and, it and, and I think that, you know, sites like Rotten Tomatoes, who rely on, you know, commenters and, and, you know, obviously like every site, people clicking on it for traffic and revenue and all that stuff, but they're, they're going to make it harder to be an asshole online. And I think that is uh, a step in the right direction. Yeah, it's definitely a good thing. I think um, there certainly has been that trend of just going online and being an absolute troll has kind of petered a little bit and that yeah. the social pressure has kind of changed. People now yeah. make fun of people who make comments on YouTube. Uh, right. There's a lot of dismissive towards that. So it's, it's less tempting to try to be that kind of a person. Uh, I noticed that it's hard to kind of be a troll on Twitter. Because there is that accountability, because your face and your name are attached to it, and everybody can immediately jump on you the moment that you start to behave in that manner. Well, this happened to me recently. I mean, I talked about this a, a few episodes back, right. where every Saturday morning, after I would appear on television on Friday night, every Saturday morning, somewhere west of me, where there's in a different time zone, they would get the show that I do a little bit later and uh, be outraged, like absolutely, like livid, like, you know, driven crazy by insignificant things, you know. Uh, I wore a striped tie with a shirt that didn't have stripes on it, you know, like, and, and, and some things that I would say. And so every morning, every Saturday morning, I would wake up and there would be a list of, of uh, tweets from this guy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at first I found it funny, then it got tiresome, and then, you know. And so what I ended up doing was just retweeting him. And I thought, you know what, let's just see what happens. And uh, he was beaten down by uh, other people on Twitter. I didn't participate in this at all. But yeah. there was just a lot of commentary uh, towards this guy, just asking, like, why? 
why, why, like, why does this bother you so much? To the point where the guy closed down his Twitter account, and I haven't heard from him since. Right. But he put a face to it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll give yeah, him that. Yeah, yeah, but he, there was no face. He was an egg. He was he an egg, egg with a name. He was an egg with a name. But nonetheless, you know, he, it wasn't completely anonymous. Well, I think um, the issue here is in terms of how all this is harmful to society, whether you're comparing Rush Limbaugh or the army of aggro kids that are online that jump on board negative reviews, is that it's not so much that people are misbehaving. This is not about, you know, etiquette or social behavior. But I think that we are, as a society, perpetuating uh, a perspective where we are, where it's either you against me, us versus them, where we're looking at everything in terms of being on a team of dividing rather than right. trying to, to bring everything right. together. And that's something I've noticed a lot with geek culture, because when I was a little boy, you didn't have such a division. I mean, you, right. you'd have people that would sort of say, I'm a fan of Star Wars, or I'm a fan of Star Trek, but it really <laughs> didn't get to be the point where it is today, where I think people online now, they feel that they're, they're almost like part of a tribe of an army, and right. when something like this happens, everybody runs to invade or to, to conquest. I mean, that's kind of the attitude that's going. I think that's a very dangerous attitude uh, for us all to fall into. Well, I think it's, I mean, look, and you, you know, I, I read an article the other day about the two Americas. You know, you have uh, the Tea Party, who's, you know, from, I mean, you know, I follow this. I've, I, I know a bit about this. But, you know, to put in a, in a, in a microcosm, uh, you know, their, their, uh, their, their public relations stance is just simply to attack. They're always on the attack. And you know, there's there's nothing you know. Facts don't really matter particularly. Uh, the the you know constructive criticism doesn't seem to matter particularly. It's just about making the other person look bad. And you know, it's easy. And I think that one of the things that's difficult about uh, uh, constructive criticism, one of the things that's difficult about uh, critical thought, is that it's not that easy. No. You actually have to think about things before you open your damn mouth and say them. And, and I think that one of the problems that we have uh, now is that people uh, think if we just attack first and, and, you know, and, and attack in a big way, uh, that you know, if our voice is louder, then, we will, then, then we're right. But, I mean, if you look at the waning popularity of Sarah Palin, of Michelle Bachman, of people like that, who had made little mini careers off that kind of presence in the media, uh, you'll see that, you know, people, I think, hopefully, are starting to see through that because it doesn't get us anywhere and it doesn't add to the discourse. It just makes it louder. Yeah, and a lot of people tend to dismiss that as just being, well, it's entertaining. You know, yeah. I, I listen to Rush Limbaugh because I don't take him seriously. Right. All of that is just him sort of performing. It's meant to be entertainment, not to be taken uh, seriously, right. even though he you know, presents it as, a, as something yeah. that you should take seriously. And, of course, there are people who really, really do. But I, I think it is very dangerous to kind of get to a point where it's not just that you behave in a way that the world is divided, but you start to perceive all issues as being black right. and white, as being between just two choices, when in reality life is never uh, so easy. It's always kind of more right. complicated. And the more that we think about it, that, that's going to be healthier if we're a little bit more open-minded in terms of how we see issues. Well, there's a show on television right now called The Newsroom, uh, the new Aaron Sorkin show. And I have to tell you, I'm not the biggest fan of the show. I think that it's a little bit overwritten. I like every week, but I watch it. I've been watching it. But every week, there's, there's one thing that just, you know, nails it, right? And, and this last uh, episode, um, Jeff Daniels, who plays uh, a reporter uh, or reporter an anchor on a very highly rated television show, and he decides to get rid of all the sort of uh, pandering to the public and do news stories that really matter and, you know, add some opinion into the news rather than, you know, trying to create this illusion of uh, being, you know, balanced and, and, and non-biased because, you know, as they make the point to show, we're humans. That's impossible. So anyway, at one point, uh, he gets accused of being a liberal and he goes, I'll tell you, because he hates the Tea Party. He says, I'll tell you, I'm not liberal. Uh, I'm a card-carrying, I'm a card-carrying Republican. Uh, the reason that people think that I'm a liberal is because um, I don't believe, you know, I believe that hurricanes were caused by, you know, low barometric pressure meeting high barometric pressure, and not because of gay marriage. Right. Yeah. And you know, they they made another point in the show. Uh, one of the other bits of the show that really spoke to me is when they said, you know, politics isn't a sport. It's not 
two teams fighting against one another, and you just love one team because they've got your favorite player on it. It's nuanced, and it's much more nuanced than that. And the nuance is the stuff that, that people seem to let go. Nuance is the first thing to go. When times get hard, when, when you know, uh, things happen, uh, you know, the, the, the finer details tend to crumble away, and people tend to only look at big picture items. And that's where you lose uh, the, 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 the reason thought. Right. Uh, you know, it, it's funny that people seem to get such pleasure and enjoyment about uh, doing takedowns, uh, which they talk about in that episode. But yeah. you know, you, here you have all these Batman fans, and they're investing their time going mm -hmm. after two very obscure reviews, mm -hmm. rather than taking all that wonderful foot traffic and going after websites that are doing something that's more positive or more constructive right. with Batman uh, yeah. and trying to elevate that kind of thing. Because I think is, is sort of, at the end of the day, uh, really what the responsibility of most geeks are. Uh, and that kind of brings me into my second topic, mm -hmm. which is an example of a healthy community. Uh, called, there you go, called the Replica Props Forum. Right, right, yeah, you were telling me about this. This yeah, is cool. This is awesome. So uh, this is a place where people gather uh, who are people that will hunt down props that are no longer being used, that have been sold off in auctions and they just want to collect it in their homes. Mm -hmm. Or more often than not, it's people who make their own costumes, who analyze what you see in the movies and try to recreate their own. And part of it is these are people who want to have their own Death Star in their living room, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, or have their own sort of Indiana Jones hat. But it's also a way to try to get a more intimate relationship with these items on the movies. I mean, part of it is just the chase of trying to hunt down all the details about, say, the motion tracker that's used in Aliens. But as you start to create and craft these items, you start to learn things about them, and just in creating them, you get a relationship with it. So I wanted to show um, some examples of some of the things that these guys have been putting together, because it's just... Oh, fantastic. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting because what you say about uh, using the Internet to track down the details and, you know, do all that stuff. I'll tell you, I was an avid record collector for many, many years. Right. And I loved, uh, in the pre-Internet days, I loved that I would read about it. I would pick up a magazine and I would read about the James Brown Christmas record. And I'd be like, oh, well, you know, i got to find that thing. And, you know, now if I want to hear it, I go on iTunes and I punch it in, and I'll probably be able to hear the song somewhere. And I can, you know, I can find the, uh, um, you know, I can, I, I can download it there, or I can go on eBay and someone will have it out there. But what I really loved was going around and like, you know, traipsing through record stores and, and you know, it, the, the James Brown Christmas record I use as an example because it took me seven years to find it, and, <laughs> <laughs> but I found it. I was relentless about it, and I found it. And uh, I think uh, what this does is it takes collecting like that up to a different level because now it's relatively easy to find stuff, relatively easy to find those sort of things. So what you're doing now is you're, you're creating uh, a, a new level of things that, you, that no one else is going to have. You find out the details, you build them, you put everything together, and that's the thrill of the chase because, for me, so much of the thrill of the chase is gone now. But this recreates that. Yes, completely. Uh, you know, I'll show you here. Let's see. We'll go for uh, Batman. So this is uh, one fellow's picture of his props room, and this is just one shot from one angle of the room. And it's just wow. of Batman paraphernalia and props. Uh, what you're looking at are not actual people dressed up. Those are mannequins. <laughs> <laughs> so this is probably a very creepy room to enter in. Yeah. Uh, but he's recreated everything. I mean, he also has uh, one wall that he's got the nurse outfit that the Joker wears at one point. Wow. Uh, right down to what kind of pen that she has in the pocket, <laughs> uh, that kind of thing. What I like in terms of when they're hunting this stuff down is that when the guys who made the original props make these props, oftentimes they're drawing materials of just things they picked up at garage sales. Right. And so it's not necessarily you're going to, you know, um, one of the things that people look for is, say, the locking mechanism on a suitcase that right. was sort of repurposed for a prop. It turns out they haven't made that suitcase in 40 years. Right. So you have an online community like the Replica Props Forum where people are hunting all <laughs> over trying to find another one of those. Either maybe there was only 4,000 suitcases made right. to try to help somebody kind of recreate what they've put together. Um, so here is one that three guys uh, assembled. Let me put it up there. And what you're looking at there, this is what I like. 
I mean, the obvious things that people try to create from movies, say Indiana Jones' uh, Bullwhip or The Idol. No, these right. guys decided to make the monkey brains that they ate <laughs> in Temple of Doom. I love that. That's awesome. That they went to such lengths to try to recreate the actual stand that is used in terms of the ball cup at the bottom, and then somebody to actually sculpt uh, the monkey head. And it's hard, because when you watch the original movie, the image itself isn't terribly large. And so part of the hunt is tracking down the guys who made this stuff and getting proper photographs, uh, especially reference photographs in terms yeah, of production what size it is. Yeah. Uh, and they get very, very obsessed with it. Uh, you also have some pretty amazing sculptors. So I'm going to show you this. This is just fantastic. Uh, and now I've seen a lot of reproductions of human heads from CG <laughs> graphics to, you know, wax, that kind of thing. This is probably one of the best things I've ever seen. Wow. I just brilliantly fantastic, as you believe. Yeah, yeah. And what's it made of, do you know? Uh, I think it's it's just, well, it would be a uh, It's made of human skin. Human skin, yeah. <laughs> uh, a lot of painting, uh, you know, in silicon. Wow. But, yeah, wow. I mean, that's something that you wouldn't be able to do through necessarily a scanning. That's somebody who sculpted that and spent a lot right. of love and time and hours. It's just, it's pretty fantastic. Uh, but the one thing that I really, if I can find it here. Oh, I have to show you this. So this is Lon Chaney in The Mummy. Cool. Yeah. Uh, and very convincing. You would think or, this or, is somebody Boris Karloff. Boris Karloff in the mummy. The what they put on the post was that this is uh, Lon Chaney. I really? think it's Karloff, but yeah, Karloff was the mummy. And unless there was another Lon Chaney movie that that I'm not as familiar with. Either way, it's pretty cool. Yeah, it looks alive. Yeah, it looks just wow. fantastic. Uh, but the reason that I I sort of have been spending a lot of time this week that I wanted to talk to, about it is this right here. Uh, if you're a Highlander fan, uh, <laughs> <laughs> probably going absolutely crazy. Uh, this is the uh, one of the swords from the movie Highlander. And although there have been many, many movie swords in movie history, this is one of the greatest swords of all time. Right. Uh, in the movie, the villain, and his name is Kurgan, played by Clancy Brown, who most kids know from SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> <laughs> but and I vote him as one of the greatest villains of all cinema time. Uh, he's in New York. Uh, right. There, you know, this movie is about a bunch of people running around and having sword battles to try to, you know, come down to one living winner who gets what they call the prize. But right. uh, when he arrives in New York, he's dressed because he's somebody who has been living throughout time. He's dressed as a, a, a New York rocker musician. He's got a bit of a mohawk, leather yeah. jacket. He comes into a hotel carrying this suitcase, and when he opens this case, it's his sword, but disassembled like a sniper rifle. Right, right, right. And he slowly takes the blade, slides the two blades together, puts the handle, the hilt, um, and looks amazing in the movie. But most people who work for the uh, work at the replica props form will tell you that it's unlikely that the actual prop worked that way. All right. That it probably was, you know, a couple of different versions of the sword, and it would just cut back and forth. Right. He actually would hold the sword up to his face, and when he did, uh, he would press a button, and the, uh, the hilt would come too low. Right? <laughs> All that just seems way too good to be right. true. Right. So what has happened is, uh, just recently, the director of Highlander, his name is Russell Mulcahy, uh, went through his old storage, and he has kept that sword. Right? Which turns out to be a very smart thing because now there's a huge lucrative market for replicas of props. Yeah. There companies that actually yeah. make actual replicas and sell it. And so he has actually reached out to this fellow that's on the replicas uh, props forum to recreate that sword, to come up with a model that can be used to create an actual product that's sold. So he was sent the actual prop. And that's what we're wow. looking at here is the photograph of the actual prop. And the guys at the replica props forum are going ape shit over this yeah. because it actually does work. The sword <laughs> There's actually a, a spring mechanism built into the hilt, so you can press a button and it actually does the whole action. Wow. Uh, and you can see that the case is still there with all the details. Everybody's now going crazy trying to find anything and everything they can to reproduce the sword for this guy. Uh, it turns out the one guy says he thinks that the case that's being used is actually from an instrument case that would have been used for a trumpet. Many, right. many years ago, they're trying to source the manufacturers and they're trying to get more. Uh, yeah, it just, the obsessive detail is incredible in terms of what these guys go through to get their props. But see, that's the part, that's the thrill, right? You right, know, yeah. it's no fun just going on eBay. You know, well, I, I mean, and, 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 and finding something like that, like, 
you know, for me, uh, I've got a new book coming out soon uh, about The Devils, a movie called The Devils by Ken Russell. And uh, while I was writing the book, I became a little kind of obsessive about the subject matter, and I thought, you know, I, I should see if I could, what I can find. So I go to, first off is, you know, eBay and places like that. I ordered a, a number of things. I got an original 1971 press kit, and uh, I got the, the original poster and, and some things, some uh, lobby cards, which were really cool. So I ordered all that stuff, and it started to trickle in. Uh, but then I was in Los Angeles, and I started sort of trekking around to these places that are, uh, that sell, you know, obscure movie stills and things like that. And that's where the real gold came from. And that's where the fun came from because yeah. I would talk to one collector who would say, oh, well, you should go see the guy who's, you know, <laughs> literally down an alleyway around the corner by the big rock, take a left, and you'll see, you know. And I eventually ended up finding a ton of them. And uh, they are now framed and will be up at the book launch and things, but they're cool. But that was the fun part of that was the chase. Right. You know? Trying to hunt down this stuff and discovering, you know, the lengths that people have gone to actually either yeah. preserve it or not throw it away. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and just how shocking. I mean, there's also a thread on the forum. I haven't grabbed the photograph of a guy who's trying to reproduce the console of the Millennium Falcon. <laughs> All the various controls. Of it. Wow. And what's brilliant about it is that when you go through each of the different switches, you realize, of course, that those are not fantasy switches, but switches that were repurposed from you know, a B-52 bomber right, or right, right, know, right. various right. different, and that's part of it, trying to hunt down, saying, you know that this is real, you know that you can cross-reference it somewhere, and then going off and trying to find an airplane graveyard where you can actually find those airplanes, get right. the switch out, and then make it in there. Well, um, you know that so much of that stuff was built uh, in, from studio prop houses. What they did, they had bits of old planes and, and old light and stuff, and people would just go in and go, yeah, I want that, and I'll take this, and I'll see it. That's cool. I'll, I'll screw that on the side. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's very cool. Well, and my point here being that you've got all these guys who, for them, being a fan, is hunting down some poor soul online and just right. bullying them to death. <laughs> and that's not what being a fan is. Right. What these guys are doing, which is that after they've seen the movie, they go home and then they try to hunt down as many details as they right. can and they obsess. There's a guy in the forum that uh, is trying to create a gambler's den. So he's got a room where he can have his poker game, but it's all set up like the uh, the – the, the, the casino in, in Star Wars, where you've got wow. all the aliens coming by, that kind of thing. Uh, and I love that kind of appreciation wow. for what they're doing and loving it. And when you see photos like that go around, I think that paints a much better uh, image of fandom. For me, that's what being a geek always was. Right. When I was young, that's what it was like. As I got older, as these companies started to market more towards uh, jocks and fraternity houses, you have a bigger, more aggressive attitude of this kind of come into the world of geeks where people feel that it's like sports. You have to go and you vanquish and conquest right. and assert yourself over others. And I think that that's actually the wrong direction. Doing what these guys do, recreating stuff, that to me is what uh, real you know, love and geek love really is all about. No, I think so too. I agree completely. And, uh, you know, the Hollywood and Fine website crashed. It was getting flamed uh, in such a big way. It's probably up again now. Uh, Christian Weir, uh, I, I texted uh, her via uh, Twitter and said, I hope you have a thick skin. And, you know, it seems that she does. You know, it's just yeah. part of it. comes along with the job. But it's a really uh, crappy and unfortunate part of the job. Geeks, though, uh, bat we're, we're, we're coming back to Batman. We are. It's all we're Batman all the time here. Yes. Uh, geeks have argued for years about who the best Batman was. Right. So that's we our, will now debate. That's our subject for uh, Movie Pistols uh, at Dawn, or we can call it Movie Batarangs at yes. Dawn for this particular week. And I thought it's just it's a fun discussion to really have. Uh, everybody has an opinion. But thinking about it, I find it really tough. One of the reasons why I wanted to do this, because it really is difficult. If we said, what's the best Joker? I think that would be much easier to come up with an answer. Um, truthfully, of all the people who played Batman on the, the television or on movies, mm -hmm. it's hard to say that there's one that really has kind of nailed it, that uh, I still think that there's the best Batman performance is still something yet to come. Well, see, I think what, what has happened is that each of the, the representations, the famous ones, anyone's, the ones that we've seen, have all really nailed one portion of a very complex character. 
Right. And and so, you know, you, you it, it would be like if you just if you if you wanted to portray me on screen and you only portrayed me as uh, a film critic and only showed me going to movies, you might be able to ace that part of the representation. And then if you only wanted to uh, show me as a writer and only showed me writing in that part of my world, you could probably do that. The trick is putting it all together. And I think the Christopher Nolan movies have done a, a pretty good job of that, although they're darker than maybe uh, you might want them to be. But for me, I think I have to say uh, Michael Keaton. Okay. I choose Michael Keaton for this. And I say Michael Keaton because... I remember when the first Batman, the first Tim Burton Batman was announced. And there was, a, you know, a, some talk about who should play him and, you know, all the sort of usual suspects came up. Michael Keaton, if the list was, uh, you know, this long, <laughs> Michael Keaton's name was down here somewhere oh, yeah. on that list. You know, this was not, he, he was not the first name that was going to jump to the top of mind, even though he was an enormous star at the time, but he wasn't uh, an enormous star in these kinds of movies. No. And particularly that, you know, uh, you know, the budgets of the recent Batman movies dwarfs whatever Tim Burton spent on his movies. But they were considered to be very expensive movies at the time. There was a lot riding on them. And the idea that Michael Keaton, uh, you know, who was best known at the time for being sort of a lightweight but very funny film comedian, sort of him and Tom Hanks around the time, had the same kind of career going. Uh, the, the idea that he might be cast as Batman uh, sent, you know, the, the fanboys into a rage. Uh, now, luckily, there was no internet, or it might have crashed, <laughs> you know, <laughs> with just, you know, sheer geek outrage of the idea that Michael Keaton might be playing the Kate Crusader. But, um, but then we saw the movie. And, I, you know, as I said earlier uh, about Anne Hathaway playing Selena Kyle, I think that one of the things that, that can make a movie great, uh, casting is 90% of the job for a director, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you just always have to cast uh, to people's expectation. And I think what what uh, Tim Burton saw here in, in Michael Keaton was someone who could handle the kind of lighter moments. Because if you'll remember, you know, the, the Tim Burton Batmans came, you know, they were the next Batman really on the big screen after uh, Adam West. So everyone associated, you know, those pow, kind of holy Cow Batman lines with it. There was a there was a cheesy kind of humor about them, which isn't completely absent from the Burton Batmans. They are considerably darker than the television show and the, the subsequent 1966 movie, but they were uh, they they did have a little bit of humor to them, certainly more than the than the Christopher Nolan movies did. Um, and so I think you needed an actor who could play that, but also like a lot of comics. Michael Keaton has a, a, a sort of a well of darkness in there somewhere that he was able to uh, draw on, and maybe just hadn't really been asked to draw on before. Later on, he did in movies like Clean and Sober and that sort of thing. But I think it was the Batman movies were the first time that we really saw um, this kind of darkness from him come out. And I think that Tim Burton nailed it when he found someone who could play the comedy, play the darkness, and you know, once you throw the suit on the guy. You know, it, it yeah. could be almost anybody under there. But uh, but he, I think he, he really pulled it off, and um, it was unconventional, it was unexpected, but it worked. Yeah, and most people that I talk to today, they still consider him to be the best uh, Batman that they've seen, very likable. And you're right, he was just the unlikeliest person. He didn't even yeah. look like somebody who had ever read a comic book, let alone uh, be able to, to do the heavy lifting of all the action that would be required yeah. in the movie or anything like that. I, I remember when it was announced that in the comic book trades, you would just have pages and pages of, of you know, shock and surprise of <laughs> writing in saying, what are they, you know, what's going on? You know, DC, do something, get in there and get involved. Um, my choice is actually kind of related to right. the, the Michael Keaton uh, movies. Um, I, I actually, when I think of, I had to think long and hard about this, and I asked right. myself the question, when I sit down and read a Batman comic book today, who is in my head as I'm right. reading that book? Who plays that role? And the answer is a combination of two men. It's Kevin Conroy and Paul Dini, mm -hmm. who are responsible for creating the Batman that you see in the Batman Saturday morning cartoons. Right. Uh, right. It's the, the Batman the Animated Series and the new Mark Hamill does the Joker and some of the voices. Totally, yes. And there's that trio. You've got Mark Hamill uh, as the Joker, Kevin Conroy as the Batman, and uh, Paul Dini is sort of the showrunner, the man who... 
went on to create Harley Quinn and had a right. huge influence in terms of Batman's culture today. Not just in terms of the animated shows, they also did uh, a couple of animated movies and uh, the, the recent Batman video games, which have just been incredible. Right. And the reason I like about it is that uh, they had also an unlikely task and that they were supposed to develop this series based on the Tim Burton movies. <laughs> At a time in which DC really wanted their modern Batman comic books to be represented and still had to make it uh, um, a series with lots of hijinks for Saturday morning cartoon kids. Right, right. And yet, somehow, in the middle of that, they created this Batman that I think represents best uh, the, the Bob Kane character. And that when you see him, he's still a guy in tights. Right. Uh, he's right. still very much the detective that goes around solving, finding cl clues, trying to him and all, and doing that in his mask, which is something that a lot of the movies don't do. They usually have, when Batman is the detective, it's as Bruce Wayne. You know, and it's only he puts the costume on when he has to do the actual fighting. But the thing about Kevin Conroy's voice that's just so fantastic, uh, and it's different from everybody else. Everybody else, when they play Batman, it's always, I'm Batman. There's yeah, kind of a whispery, yeah. raspy, I'm a tough guy kind of voice. But Kevin Conroy approaches it with a certain amount of steel. His voice is down here like that, and every right. word is properly announced. And there's never a point in which the intelligence kind of leaves it, uh, and it's not a cold voice. Everybody else goes for a cold Batman voice. No, he makes sure that he has the warmth there so that mm. that steel just kind of melts and bends just when he needs it to be four moments of humor, four moments of, of sort of, you know, empathy. Right. And it's just, you know, time and time again, they've produced so many episodes and so many series that I'm just blown away at how I keep coming back to that idea and that performance uh, of Batman. It's just <clears throat> brilliant, I think. Well... That's your choice, then. So go to <laughs> heyallyouzombies.com. Uh, you'll see a, a poll there. Uh, vote for uh, either the selection that Chris made or the selection that I've made there. Uh, next week, we will announce the winner of Movie Pistols at Dawn. And um, I don't know. It's pretty good. Like, it's a tough one. This is a tough one. And I'm not exactly sure which way this is going to go. Right. Usually, I, I go, well, of course, I'm going to win. But yeah. uh, this one, I'm not, I'm not exactly <laughs> sure because... You know, as I say, I mean, I, I think that so many of the Batmans um, have have finagled, just you know, grabbed on one part of a very complex story and told it well. And it, I guess it depends on because I have talked to people who think, you know, while the Christopher Nolan movies are interesting, that they're too dark for them, or you know, they wanted right. they want something more, so they tend to like you know the 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 Burton Batmans, and nobody likes the Joel Schumacher one. So no, you know. well, and Adam West. Uh, you know, whenever I see him, even though he's an older fellow now and he's not in the costume, I still think Batman. I, I don't... Listen, I interviewed him a little while ago. I interviewed him, uh, you know, I don't know, last year or the year before. And uh, I can't even remember what it was for. I mean, I think he was he was appearing at a convention or something. And I was like, Batman? <laughs> I want to talk to Batman. So we did it on the phone. <laughs> I'll tell you. Like, you know, uh, I, I couldn't get it out of my head, the idea that I was talking to Batman. Because he sounds just like Batman in my head. Even though Christian Bale, you know, has spent six hours <laughs> on screen talking like this. Uh, Adam West is always going to be Batman's voice for me. Yeah, and he had to play Batman as a comedy. I mean, there are episodes in which he's got a, a big rubber shark puppet gnawing on his leg. And, yeah, you know, it's like, no, he's Batman. It's just brilliant. Uh, yeah, so please go to heyallyouzombies.com. Uh, by all means, give us your comments. Maybe you have an idea for a movie pistols at dawn. Make your suggestions, and uh, we'll see you again next week. Yeah, before we go, I just want to uh, – I'm just going to throw this up again. Hang on. All right. Oops. Uh, this is taking a long time. I'll go ahead. Yeah, we're, we're just going to leave you with that image in your head. <laughs> <laughs> right now, somewhere, Rush Limbaugh's head is exploding, if he's watching right now. <laughs> uh, see you next time, everybody.